we're going to settle in and we're going to we're going to keep going with the love of Christ and then we're going to right before lunch we're going to touch on the fullness of God and I could spend an entire weekend taking apart living life full and not empty we just may have to reconvene right we'll just we'll just have a retreat on fullness um, but we will we'll try to end that before lunch and then we will kind of conclude our whole time together with the ending session after lunch that he is able because that is the truth um, you know I was thinking about that song it was a Beatles song okay but again different age bracket we got some of y'all in there that grew up in that age but y'all remember this song right here comes the sun do 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 here comes the sun little darling everything's gonna be all right well guess what here comes the sun S-O-N, and everything's going to be all right. And he's going to reclaim your smile, and he's going to put balm where there's open wounds, because that's what his love does, because it covers a multitude. It's wide, it's high, it's deep, it's long. And to be like a child to remember that, that innocence of, I believe it because you tell me it's true. Not because I can fully understand it, not because I think I deserve it or I've, I've lost it because I've done something so bad you couldn't love me. I, I want to put all that aside and say, Lord, I, I just want to be a little three-year-old like my daughter that just sings that song in full unabashed abandon because she doesn't know anything different. Jesus loves her and her mommy loves her and her daddy loves her and her brother loves her sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time she sings that in full confidence. Oh, that you would do the same. That you would know it comprehensively, seizing it, experiencing it, personally knowing it to be real, moving this love of Christ from this conceptual head knowledge that can be daunting and general to a personal reality. That is what his heart is for you. That's what my heart is for you. Listen to this quote from a commentator that said, what comfort, what consolation, what strength it gives, what a stay in the times of trial and adversity to know that if his heart has been set on you and his affection is upon you, which it is, there it will remain. Nothing, not even you, will be able to pluck yourself out of his hand. Because he has set his affection on you. If hell be let loose, if everything and everyone goes against you, nothing will cause him to let you go. We have a tendency sometimes when we're hurt or when love, and I'll, I'll use that word with a little l, okay, has let us down. You know what we do? We either wall up 
or we let go and say, man, I'm done. And I'm going to go hard and I'm going to get cold. I'm not letting that in because that hurt me. Maybe the church did that for you. And I'm so sorry if that's the case. But we're not talking about the church today. We're not talking about people today because they will fail you every time. What we are talking about is the unending, unfailing, everlasting, all-covering love of God. That even when you want to let go, he doesn't. I love when Peter, you know, Peter denied Christ three times, not just once. And he was a disciple. He walked with him. He knew him. Peter was, y'all think I'm passionate, okay? I can't wait to meet Peter. Peter was, I mean, he was like, Katie, bar the door, okay? Peter was all in. He walked on water, for goodness sakes. He cut the Roman's ear off, okay, trying to protect Jesus. Peter loved him. But when the heat turned up three times, Peter said, I don't know him. And you know the guilt and the shame and the how could I do that that may have been in Peter? Can't even imagine. But you know who Christ built the entire church on? Peter. Peter's, the Holy Spirit in Peter. Y'all, he was so imperfect. They all are. We all are. None of us deserve or can maintain or can initiate the love of God. None of them did. And I remember this part, and Jesus has just done some miracles, and and Peter's just, you know, he's being Peter for a minute. And I remember this one line, I've said it so many times, when I've been tempted to say, Lord, this hurts, and I want to just let go. I'm growing weary and doing good here. I'm growing weary and believing you. I just want to let go. And Peter said this, and I have counted it so many times, written it so many times, repeat it so many times. Lord, to whom else do I have to go? There's no one else. And even when you might frustrate me or you cut me wide open with your love, oh God, there's no one else for me. You are it. You realize, ladies, that there is a progression, if you will, in the Christian life, in growing up in things of the Lord and deepening your root system and and having your foundation built. He is Lord. That's got to be a first step. He's, 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 well, really, it's Savior, okay? It's, it's coming to the cross and experiencing him as your personal, not corporate, not denominational, not Southern Savior. He's your Savior. It's not your grandmother's. He's yours. And you've got to come to that place, and only you can come to that place between you and the Father as he draws you. But, but that's the beginning Savior, then what? Then he moves into Lord. You submit to him. Now, again, there's probably a lot of people because we live in the buckle belt of the Bible belt. We're in the buckle here, okay? We got churches and I can throw a rock and hit eight churches right now. Beautiful gift. 
We, we live in America. It's a, it's a privilege, it's an honor that we ladies can gather here right now in the freedom of our country to talk about this. So those are things that we don't take for granted, but listen to me, moving beyond this conceptual knowledge that he is, oh yeah, I believe in God, okay? That, that is, that's over here. We're, we're talking about something entirely different. He moves from being Savior to being Lord, to being Master, to being the one I am submitted to, that I trust, that I follow at all cost. When it doesn't make sense, when his love allows hurt, I don't just step back and go, yeah, I'm out. I'm out. I'm letting go. Because you're not good. You're not who you said you are. No, when you move from Savior to Lord, you understand in that seizing, possessive way that his love is more than what he does. But it's who he is. But there's one more, I don't want to say level, there's one more step in to growth, deepening your roots. He becomes your life. Just what Cindy said. For those of y'all that are gardeners or that you have those awesome three-tiered fountains in your yards, okay, we have a neighbor that has one of those, right? It's like this big and it has a basin of water in it and then it has a little funnel trickle and then there's some more water, right? And then it goes to the very top and then there's more water spilling out. You know what that is, a, is an imagery of to me in my mind is a woman who is loved by God as her Lord, her Savior, her Lord in her life. She's full. She is spilling out. She is not perfect. She's not put together. She's not unmarred, okay? It's not like there's no pieces here. She's loved by God, and she knows that, and she has stepped in to loving him just the same to move beyond this generic check-a-box Christianity and into Savior, Lord, and life to where fullness is the reality. I want you to turn with me to 1 John because we cannot talk about God's love without reading 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 is so paramount in love. John wrote this book. And I love how he uses some phrases here when it talks about the love of God. And we're going to start in verse 10. Stick with me. We're reading nine verses. We're starting in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Do you see the juxtaposition again? Do you remember what Paul said last night in Galatians 4, 8, and 9? You know, for you were once slaves before you knew God. And then he says, and now you know God or rather are known by God. That's the similar thing that John is doing here. In the Greek, it's placing emphasis and significance on what he is about to say not what he just said. So it says, in this is love. He's going to give a contradiction. Not that you love God. What? But that he loved us and sent his son 
to be the propitiation, big, huge Christian word that really means coverage for us, for our sins. This is the picture of the four-dimensional love of God. Beloved, he uses that word beloved. Christy Knuckles is one of my favorite lead worshipers, has a song called Beloved. And you know, beloved is made up of be loved, not do loved, not earn love, be loved. That's your new name. Beloved, that's a cherishing word. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see how all the, the activity of our lives flows out of the intimacy of his love with us? So if this intimacy, if this foundational root system is not solid, every other area of your life, your responsibilities, your parenting, your marriage, how you deal with your money, your, your self-image, I'm talking every single area is the leaning tower of Pisa. It's, it's vulnerable. You've got to understand the first part. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to one another. Verse 12, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. It's one of my favorite scripture words. And his love is perfected in us. Well, that, is, that is a powerful statement. By this we know, verse 13, that we abide in him and he in us. Love. Love is the currency here. Not how we define it, how he's defined it. Because he has given us his spirit and we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Not just general, it's personal. You, you can be one of the multitude. He didn't just die in a blanket for everybody. He died for you. Verse 15, here's the invitation if you don't know him. Whoever, whoever, whatever, whatever you've done, whoever you are, whoever you think you are, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, the only way. John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, God abides in him then and he in God. Verse 16, here's the crux. And when that occurs, when verse 15 occurs, verse 16 becomes a reality. And we have come to know, there it is, Greek word, experientially, and have believed, two-part process, got to have both, the love which God has for us. God is love moves beyond demonstration right into definition. He is it. He doesn't just do it. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him, lives, takes up residence, never to leave. Y'all know the difference between renting and owning, yes? 
Okay, let me ask you a question. Would you renovate a house you rent? Absolutely not. You are not going to spend the time or the money or the mess to renovate something that is not your own. You rent it. Owning is entirely different. You realize this word abide is a dwell word. It's, it's as, a, as a creative, as a designer, as someone who loves to decorate and create spaces. This word I love because it is really a home word. It's a dwell word. It's domesticity at its best. It's God taking up residence in you never to leave. He is not renting space. His love covers it all and it remains. But now here's the thing. I'm just about to get on a high horse here for a second. God's love doesn't leave you the same. Y'all, our culture is in a battle right now. Because even in the Christian culture, God's love is just this. You just keep being you. You, just, you know what? God loves you. You just, keep go, you just keep doing your thing. He covers you. You're good. You just keep, you keep sinning, okay? You keep spitting, really, on what he did at the finished cross, but you just keep claiming that. You show up on Sunday, and then you just, you just keep doing your thing because God loves you. Oh, no, 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 no. He approves you. Yes, he does. He fully accepts you. Yes, he does. But here's what's so powerful. His love renovates you. It doesn't leave you the same because he isn't renting space in your heart to just let you kind of play around with his love. No, he says, I want to abide in you. I want to take up residence in you and I want to leave you different. I want to transform you. Now, if any of y'all have lived through a renovation, it will make you lose your mind. We, we decided to have the great idea during COVID with a newborn baby to renovate our kitchen. Why we did that, I have no idea. Thank the Lord my parents live in our, back, you know, our backyard so I could walk over and kind of live there and get, get a breather from the dust and the contractors and the and always takes longer, always costs more. The whole thing. But through that, God was speaking to me. I had never experienced postpartum depression before in my life. And I had it, and I didn't know. And I was living in literal disaster zone and nursing a baby and not sleeping and just like, hello, my brain is flatlining here. And it was COVID. So I didn't get to do what I love to do, which is to, to deliver this. I didn't get to see people, okay? I mean, we didn't get to talk to each other. And I'm going, Lord, I, I'm... I'm dying on the vine here. And he said, Sarah, just like your house is being torn apart, my love does that too. And it wants to renovate you and it wants to gut some things out in you that have settled in too deeply that I don't want to be there. And so I'm going to use some scary things. I'm going to use some depression. I'm going to use some some fear. I'm going to use some things and I'm going to allow some things to surface to go, I don't want that there as your heavenly father. And so in my love, I'm going to get this out of you. I'm going to renovate because I abide in you. I dwell in you. I am here to stay. That is freedom. 
That is not scary. He, he, once, once you are secure in him, y'all, it is forever. But he does not leave you the same. It is not the approval in the sense that, hey, you just keep being you. You, you just keep doing your thing. God, love wins. You know, God, God is love and everybody, he just, everybody's going to be great in the end. Y'all, that is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is absolutely he died for the sins of the whole world. Absolutely does he approve and, and set his affection on you, but he does that in order to change you into what? Into more of him, less of you. Sin should lessen. Victory should increase. Victory over sin. Victory over fear. Victory. These are things that should happen, and it takes a renovation. It's a mess some dust, some, I don't know if this is worth it. But you see, as a designer, as someone who can see the end result, it's always worth it. The person living in the renovation is going, what are we doing? Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then you've got to remember, oh yeah, wait a second. I know what it's going to be. And man, it's going to be worth it. That's what the love of God does. He transforms and renovates us because he's abiding in you. If, in fact, you are his daughter. And even furthermore, he longs for you, guess what? To reside with him. Don't rent space. Don't just come on Sunday. No, you stay in God. It's 365. It's 24-7. There is no separation between he and I. His love for me and out of that, my responsive love to him. That looks like obedience. Yes. That looks like aligning our lives with this and what he says here about gender, and what he says here about marriage, and what he says here about who we are. Yes, all of that is part of his love having its way in your life. Don't be surprised if a renovation begins when you allow him to love you. And when you step in and go, Lord, I don't fully get it. I don't fully understand it, but I want to abide in your love and I want you to abide in me. So make your home in me. Well, then you know what he's going to do? He's going to create space. He's going to create some emptiness. He's going to tear down walls. And it's going to be a little messy. Is it worth it? Oh, yes, it's worth it. There's a book that I highly recommend every single one of you go out and get. I think it's out of print, but you can get it on christianbooksellers.com or maybe Amazon. It's called, it's all H's. Hind's Feet for High Places by Hannah Hernard. This, this needs to be your, your, your reading, okay? You will read it. I don't care if you're a reader or you're not a reader. You will read it in probably one sitting. It is an entire allegory of the love of Christ, the shepherd, the tender, the cherisher, the one who knows to a little girl who grows into a woman whose name is much afraid who's in a wheelchair, and she's been crippled by life, and she is, her name is much afraid. 
And as we're going to see here in 1 John, he goes on to say, when you are perfected in fear, you are, or when you are perfected in love, there is no fear. You have to read the book because in this journey with love himself, he begins to renovate her, to change her from the inside out. And man, it does not all feel good. There's some tear stains in that book for, for me. I've probably read it two dozen times because there's this beautiful scene when he longs to express his love for her and he wants her to trust him. But he says, I have to plant something in you first. And she's thinking, oh, well, it's going to be a rose. I mean, God loves me. The shepherd loves me. He's carrying me to the high places. He's, he's going to change my whole life. He's moving me out of where I used to live and where she lived was called the Valley of Humiliation. He's going to take me up to the mountain places. This is going to be a beautiful flower bouquet of his love to me. And he said, actually, it's a thorn. And I'm going to shove it so deeply into your heart, you're going to bleed. I am going to tear open which you could never have imagined, to bring you into the deeper reality of my love for you, much afraid. And she just begins to weep, and she says, but a good shepherd wouldn't do that. And he said, oh, but I'm, I'm not just the good shepherd. I'm the chief shepherd, and I know exactly how to usher you in to my love. Read that book. It will bring 1 John 4 and Ephesians 3 home in your heart like nothing I can say. So verse 17 in 1 John, by this love is perfected with us that we have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. There is an English love, there is an hum human love, but not an agape. Do not define or translate God's love for you the way a man has loved you or not. He's talking about agape here. Remember, there's five words for love in Greek. This is a big one. This is not just a blanket English love. There is no fear in agape, in his unending, unbroken, unrivaled love. But perfect love, agape, cast out fear, gets rid of it. You don't have to be scared of God. There's awe and reverence, yes. There's a holy trembling and a, and a respect, but there is never fear. Perfect love cast out fear because fear involves punishment. Oh man, so many people put God and punishment in the same sentence. Believers. Now he is a God of justice. He is a God of love. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of both. He, has, he allows pain. He allows love. It's both. But a lot of believers, I will say, people that have somewhat walked with him, forget that his love transforms us and sets us free from living in the fear of him. He cherishes you, remember? When someone is cherished, they don't feel scared. 
They feel treasured. They feel safe. They feel protected. He cherishes you. And the one who fears then has not been yet perfected in love. And that's okay if that's where you are. But if you will allow love himself, if you will allow the person and the work of Christ to have its way in you as we opened up with 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that you will believe it for what it is and let the performing work happen, he will take out fear from you. And his love for you will categorize everything in your life. And all of a sudden, your lens, your glasses will change. Your circumstances may not. Your history is your history. Yes, it is. But you see, you've come into realization of God loves me enough to cover that and to transform me, to not leave me the same, to heal me. Verse 19, of course. We love because he first loved us. Do you notice the the verb tense is different? We love is a present tense. He first what? Loved. Before time, length, width, height, depth. He loved then while you were yet still in your sin. Remember the prodigal son who squandered it all and said, man, I just want to leave and go have my way. I'm going to go get love elsewhere. I'm going to go just spend it all because that's going to satisfy me. Oh man, to, all, to some degree, we've all done that in our own way. It doesn't have to be just sexual or just relational. Man, love can take on many forms. And the prodigal son does this, and then he realizes just how empty that kind of love chase is. And you know what he remembers in the pigsty, covered in stink, with no food, and all the friends he thought he had left? I have a dad. I have a home. I did have an inheritance. I probably don't have that anymore, but I have a dad and I want to go home. I want to go home to his love and I'm not going to go on my feet. I'm going to grovel in because I do not deserve his acceptance of me. But all I know is I don't want to live here and where I thought love was. I want to go where I know love is. I want to go home. But guess what? You know who meets him first? Oh, the father comes out way before the son ever gets to the door. And he, I can only imagine, he is dirty and he is on his knees and he is so shamed and so embarrassed and just the lowest of low that he's just going to come back and say, look, I'll just serve here, okay? I'll just, you don't even have to call me your son. I'll just serve here. I just know that what I was chasing did not love me in return, and I don't love it anymore, and I just want a spot here, even if it's just to be a slave. And the father goes, oh, son, welcome home. 
not only are you not going to be a slave, you are my son. You have always been my son. Get the fattest calf. Bring the richest robes. Celebrate. Because my son is home and he's loved. Maybe that's your story. That you decided to chase love out here. Maybe you still are. When you encounter love with a capital L, the Father's love, how deep the Father's love is for you, it'll make all that pale in comparison. And then when you go so far as to read the truth and you go, whoa, not only am I invited into his love, but I'm a son, I'm a daughter. You're going to throw a party for me when I come home? That's love I don't deserve. And he said, exactly. It's never been contingent on you. It's never been defined by you. This is what's always defined love and always will. I am love, Sarah. God is love. And I want to perfect you in my love. And when that happens, shame is gone. Fear is gone. Conviction is there, sure. You don't just get to go do what you want and squander God's love. There's a, there's a spirit living inside of you called a Holy Spirit that convicts you and, and goes, Lord, I don't, I don't want to hurt your heart. I, I want to be a daughter that lives in your love and doesn't doubt your love or, or squander your love. But there is no fear. There's a lot of Christians living scared. Scared of God. Scared of what he might do or not do. Scared of circumstances. I don't even know. There's a lot of people living scared in general since 2020. His love cast out fear. So let me ask you a question, too, actually. Have you come to really know his love? To yada it, to perceive it, to desire it, to, to just move beyond, conceptualize it? Have you come to know his love of you? Not based on his, the circumstances or what you think you are owed or none of that. Have you come to know his love intimately the way Adam knew Eve? Play that scene out. Naked, open, unshamed, without guilt, I know I am in love, capital L. And secondly, if you have, and you are a Christian, and you are someone who, who has that, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, he's not renting, but he's in you, and he's transforming you, then the second question would be for you. Do you confidently, consistently, and I would even say passionately, believe his love for you? Or is there a wrestling match? Is there a doubt? Is there a, I know I should know better. I know that, yes, but I can't reconcile, Sarah, that he did this and he loves me. That's only a question you can answer. But when you do both, when you come to know and believe, as 1 John 4 says, there is a renovation and a transformation that will take place in your life that will be so worth it. 
It'll blow you away. So turn back to Ephesians 3 and look at verse 19. Because when you come to know his love of you, his cherishing of you, when you come to believe his love for you, his agape 3D, all-dimensional, all-covering love for you, verse 19 tells us what is going to be the, the outcome of knowing that, experiencing that. It says this, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, here we go, that, here's the reason Paul's about to give, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Whoa. I mean, in a way, it's, it's almost a blasphemous statement to go, wow, God is going to fill me, leaving no gap, leaving no space, leaving no hole unfilled with himself. Whoa. He is going to take up residence, not just in my kitchen, not just in my bedroom, not just on a Sunday. Not to, he's, he is going to fill me entirely. He doesn't want you living empty. The cross didn't do that. He did not go to the depths and rise again to the heights to be seated at the place of God to have Christians living this empty, sorry life. He died and rose again to fill us, to leave us knowing this fullness that the, that the world is ignorant of. And they have their way of trying to fill us, yes? There's all different kinds of things that vie for your attention, that promise to fill you. We've all been down that road, and the road ends the same place every time. Emptiness, not fullness. Y'all have heard it said, right? I think it was maybe Pascal or something, that we all have a God-sized what? Void. We were born with it. Did you realize not only were we born in sin, y'all, we were born empty. We were born with a void, with a huge gap, a vacancy, a hollowness that was designed by God to be there. After sin entered the garden, void entered on purpose. Because at the same time that sin entered and Adam and Eve exited, guess what? Jesus, the plan was already in place. Because here's what's amazing about Adam and Eve. And this is just a theological two cents. I don't know. This is just my opinion. Adam and Eve walked with God, yes, in the Garden of Eden. They were friends with him. They walked with him. They were naked no shame, no guilt. There was, a, there was a relationship there that was intimate, right? Sin enters. They exit. Relationship broke. But here's what they did not necessarily have. The indwelling Christ. They walked with God the Father. But from the very beginning of time, the plan 
was to always not just walk with God, to be full of God. And in order for us to be full of God, do you know what has to happen? Emptiness has to occur. We have to recognize, I was born empty. I was born as a sinner. I was born with a hole that only God could fill, and he has every intention to fill it. But just like I said, the kingdom of God flips everything upside down. You've got to be weak to be strong. You've got to be blind to see. You have to be foolish to the world to be wise in God. Well, guess what? You have to experience emptiness to know fullness. You, life, life will do this for you. You don't have to help it. You will come to the end of you sooner or later. And the end of you, the, the emptiness of you, is the beginning of the fullness of him inside you. So he has to take away, subtract the things that we have sought to fill. Even good things. Honestly, I mean, even even doing good things for him and the activity for him. If that becomes a competitor, if that becomes a space filler where he's going, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, wait a second, activity is all of a sudden coming way too more important than intimacy with me, then I will take that away. And that'll hurt. But it's worth it. It's worth it. He wants to fill every crevice. And not only that, right, think of the fountain. Not only does he want to fill you he wants to overflow you. He wants to spill out of your life onto that of your husband, onto that of your children, onto one another in your ministries. Yes, man, women can be mean. I mean, we can just be mean. Hurting people hurt people, right? A woman who has not entered into the fullness of God's love cannot love no matter how hard she tries. So stop trying. Stop working for God. Stop doing so much to keep the rat reel going, the the rat race going of, okay, I love God and he wants me to do this and I love, just sit in his love for you and let him fill you because when he fills you, he will overflow out of you onto others and they will come in contact with you and go, She's full. And I want whatever that is. It's not us. It's not our doing. It's him. Turn with me to John chapter 10. I love this verse about fullness because this really capitalizes this idea of abundance. You know, fullness. It's it's abundant. And we're going to take apart verse 20 at the end of our time today because, because Paul kind of uses this phraseology of abundant that John uses in John 10. And this is Jesus talking here, and he, he, just, he just says this beautiful statement. Verse 9, I am the door. Red letters. This is directly the words of God right here. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, it's the only way to enter, 
It's the only way to have oneness with the Father is through Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other God. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out. Remember Psalm 139? He knows when you sit, when you rise. Go in and out and find pasture. You know what pasture is to a sheep? It's provision. It's comfort. It's protection. It's fullness. That sheep has everything he needs in the pasture the shepherd provided. And that's what he's saying. And then, then he says, John 10, 10, juxtaposition. Now the thief, not the shepherd, no, 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 the thief, oh, and we got one, he's real, just as surely as the shepherd is. The thief comes only to do three things, only three things, and he did this in the garden and he's still doing it today, to steal, to kill, and to destroy your fullness your belief that God knows you, your belief that, that God loves you. He, he is wanting to kill, steal, and destroy the entire character of God, that he is not good. That's what he told Eve, basically, from the beginning. Did he really say that? Come on. No. Are you really going to die? No. Y'all, he has been stealing, killing, and destroying from the very beginning, assassinating the character of God. And he wants to do that in your definition of love, in your, in your capacity to, to enter into the God of the world intimately knowing you. He wants you to not get that. Because guess what? If you get that, whoa. Jesus said, you're going to know abundance. Because what I came to give you, and that's the second part of this verse, is going to blow your mind. And the enemy knows what hangs in the balance is man. If women get full of God and they experience this abundant life that Jesus promises to give, I lose. I lose ground. I, I lose the war. I, I may, I may looks like I may win the battle, but in the end I'm going to lose the war if they get it. So if I can try to steal from them the definition of love, if I can try to destroy for them that they're known that God is good, then I'll just gain a little bit more time. But you see, Jesus, remember, he's the promise maker and he's going to keep it. And his word, Isaiah, never goes out without returning, doing exactly what it was guaranteed to do. And this is what Jesus says. I came, past tense, I came that they might have life. And then he goes on, and might have it abundantly. Now look at the verb tense again. The enemy, the thief, what's the verb tense of come? It's present. He comes. He's coming at you right now. And frankly, living on this broken place, until we die, he's going to keep coming. But guess what? The past tense verb is there. Jesus said, oh yeah, but I already came. I already did that. It is secure. It is solid. And one day, not only will every knee and tongue confess that I am Lord, so will the thief. And he will give answer. And the day will come when the war is over. And Jesus is the victor. 
He already is now, but we are going to get to be in that victory with him. And he's going, look, I came, I did that, not to just forgive you of your sins, yes, but to give you life and life to the full. Fill, full, filled up, not empty. But here's what's really struck me for years about this verse, is the word might. What does might mean? It's available. It's secure. Jesus offers it. It is fully available. But guess what? Not everybody's going to experience it. I came that they might have life. Y'all, he could have said, I came that they will all have life. He didn't. He said, I came that they might have life. And even further than that, that they might have it in full, abundantly. And Paul uses that phrase, exceeding abundantly, when he's talking about God's ability. I don't know where you are, but I know that God's heart is for you not to stay empty. I know that his heart for you is not to be in the category of she might be able to experience the abundant life. No, he secured it for you. But here's, here's our role, so to speak, if we have one. It is to believe that it is true. It is to partner with God and say, Lord, I don't fully understand it. I don't fully you know, understand that I, I can't deserve it. I can't earn it. But all I know is what you say is true, and I want to enter in, and I don't want to be empty. I want you to fill me, so, so create whatever space you need to create. Remove whatever you have to remove and fill me, not just with life, but with the top tier of the fountain, with abundant life, that my cup, Psalm 23, right, overflows. Not because my circumstances are perfect, not because I get every single thing I ever wanted, no, this is not health, wealth, and prosperity that God's going to just lay out a bed of roses for you and just give you this amazing life and you're all going to be millionaires tomorrow. That is not the case. What he is saying is that I am your abundance. That the more of me you have, the less of you you will have. And the more of me you know and you believe in my love, you will have fullness without measure. It's so much more than money. It's so much more than getting what you want or having that marriage. Or he, he, he can be in all those details, of course. But he is the reward. He is the abundance. To be full of God. Wow. You know, he didn't just die in part. It, it wasn't just halfway done. So why would we think that he's only going to fill us halfway? That he, well, Sarah, he can't, he can't reign and control in this situation. Surely, I lost my husband. I, I'm empty. I'm vacant. I lost my brother. I've lost. Sarah, I'm empty. Surely, God can't fill a tangible earthly loss. Oh, yes, he can. He is invisible, but ladies, he is not intangible. He is as real as I'm standing here. No, we may not hear him audibly like they did in the Old Testament, but guess what? Your, your heart has ears. Your heart has eyes, 
Scripture talks about it. And Paul even says, I pray that your eyes would be enlightened, that your heart eyes would be enlightened. Oh, he can speak to you. He can woo you. He can fill you even in the greatest of vacancies. He can and he will as we partner with him in faith to do so. I have met so many women in my years of ministry, 20 years really of ministry, of just being available and and writing and speaking and teaching and sitting across coffee and sharing tears and God willing, not giving my wisdom, but just pointing people to Jesus. Just let me take you to the word. So many, and, and there's just been this common thread to some extent of emptiness as a believer. Sarah, I want more. I said, there is. He died to give you more than just checking a box and going to church and doing the right thing and serving him. Oh, there's so much more. The fullness of God. And the irony is that he uses emptiness. I remembered thinking in seasons in my life when I felt that God had removed something, that I had lost something, that I was less whole, that I was less full. He brought me to the verse, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Okay, well, he brought that verse to me in a season where I felt like every single thing was subtracted from me. And I'm going, Lord... Your word doesn't contradict itself, but right now the circumstances, I I am having a difficult time because I'm I'm losing sight and I'm starting to define your love by what you do and, and I don't see things being added unto me. I don't, I am seeking you. I am seeking the the kingdom of God, but Lord, what does that look like? Because man, I know removal at first hand. I know loss. And it was just so clear to me. Just in the spirit of God in my heart, he said, Sarah, in everything I take away, I add more unto you of me. There is always divine addition when earthly subtraction happens. Always. Because the word of God never contradicts itself. And so where there might be emptiness and where there might be so much activity that intimacy in God is just kind of like, I don't even know how to slow down. I mean, life is just, you know, just running me. He's sitting there going, in every removal, that's why Job could say what he did, in every removal of something or someone or a dream or a definition or a thought, in every removal of that, that is me at work adding unto you me. What more do you want? Oh, he's, he's answered my prayer. I have an amazing husband of 10 years. I have two beautiful children. He, he, he's oversubscribed the things I so longed for. But let me tell you, he gave me himself first. He withheld those things for 11 years in order to not have a competitor. Sarah, I am your life, and yes, I want to give you, and I want to bless you, and I want to lavishly love on you in those tangible ways, and he has, and he does. 
but it is secondary to Him being my fullness, to Him being the reward, the enoughness. Y'all remember that song, Chris Tomlin, right? You are more than enough for me. Izzy, I can't answer that question for you. But that might be one that's worth wrestling through to say, honestly, Sarah, no, he's not. Okay, that's all right. It's a great starting place. Because he's big enough to handle your questions. He is big enough to handle your tears. He is not scared at you coming to wrestle with him. You know, Jacob, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And I think it was a Christophany. I think it was a, a picture of Christ. He said, look, I'm going to wrestle with you all night long. He is big enough to handle your wrestling. And on the end of that, Jacob not only walked away with a limp, yes, he did, but he walked away with a different name. He was transformed. He went in potentially to that wrestling match a little empty, a little confused, a little, God, just I'm not going to leave till you bless me. Give me all of you. And God goes, okay, now you will walk out of here for the rest of your life with a limp. But your name's going to change. Your entire identity is going to change. You're going to go from being empty to being full. From being unloved or confused or I don't know, to being loved by God. He is going to renovate you. Because he wants to take up residence in you. At the funeral, I referenced, um, they sang this hymn. It's just a beautiful hymn, and I had never heard it sung necessarily the way that they sang it. But I wanted to read some of the lyrics to you. And this hymn was actually written by a woman, a German woman, Katharina Schlegel, in 1762, I believe. She died 16 years after she wrote this hymn. But there's this, this beautiful picture of fullness, ironically, in a hymn that's sung at a funeral that I heard as this song was, was sung. And it says this, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, the best thy heavenly friend through thorny ways will lead to joyful end. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart. When all is darkened in the veil of tears, then thou shalt know better his love and his heart who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Now listen to this last line. Be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. From the same hand comes removal and comes filling. Out of his fullness, of his own resources, which are just limitless, he will fill all 
he has taken away. There wasn't a dry eye in that room, and there was a lot of people there that did not know the Lord, for sure. He was a PGA golfer, ESPN people were there, I mean, it was, just, it was nuts. But I sat there next to my friend going, he is now so full, he knew Christ, and the gospel was presented so beautifully to those 900 people in that room. Because what that pastor said that day is that this man was ushered in to the fullness of God. His faith was made sight. But on this side of earth, he had already entered into the fullness of God through the work and the finished display of God's love at the cross. And Lauren and I sat there and we were just weeping, knowing, Lord, we too have experienced loss and hurt and pain and all those things, but Jesus, of your own fullness, you fill in all the areas that you allow a subtraction. That's the power of God's love. It's the power of his word. And so I just, I just want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to think about Jesus coming to you, not in judgment right now, not in punishment or fear, but he's coming to you in all of his love, in all of his fullness to fill you. Yes, to empty you of you. Don't fear that because he won't leave you there. He wants to fill you with himself, satisfy you, even in the places where the vacancy seems so immeasurable. He can do more than you can ask or think. And so, Heavenly Father, right now, I ask you to each woman in this room, Father, to meet them where they are, that if they have yet to know you and to to believe that you're the one that knows them the most intimately, God, would you call them by name in a way that maybe is the first time? Would you let salvation spring up from the ground into these women's hearts? And for those, Jesus, that do know you, God, would you ignite them and awaken them? Fill them. Remove this sad unexciting Christian perspective in life and fill them now. Breathe into them this fullness that that just changes everything. Oh God, we praise you that you are a God that knows us and loves us and fills us and doesn't leave us the same. Thank you for your renovating power for your transformational love that approves us where we are, but it it loves us so much it doesn't leave us there. Thank you, Jesus, for being in our midst. Continue to open the eyes of our heart. Continue to open the ears of our heart to receive your message for what it is, the word of God, and for it to perform the work that you desire it to do. Oh God, may we
potentially have come in here empty yesterday. Jesus, may we leave today full. And not just because of Calvary Chapel in these two days, but full with the unending filling of you that characterizes every day hereafter. In Jesus Christ's powerful name, amen.